Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Agora Podcast. I've been looking forward to recording this episode for uh, months. Uh, Ross Dawson is somebody I only met recently, and I have I had a sense after our first conversation that he was somebody I wish I had discovered years and years ago because he's done so much thinking uh, on topics that have always interested me and that I've always been starving for material on. I'm inspired by what he writes and uh, the, the way he thinks and his big thoughts. And um, I'm really looking forward to it, uh, to this conversation. Uh, he's an author. He's a futurist. He's a former, he's an entrepreneur. He's, he does a lot of things. Uh, but more than anything, he's, uh, I think, a big picture visionary who has a really incredible take on the nature of humanity and, and our direction. I'm going to talk as little as possible because uh, I really want uh, to, to bask in his wisdom, but uh, welcome to the show, Ross. Welcome to the Agora Podcast with Byron Reese, as he talks with great minds about what they're working on, what problems they're solving, and what passions drive them forward. Enjoy the show. Fantastic to be here, Byron. Thanks. Your first book, uh, the first book of yours that I read, was called Living Networks. And both of those are pretty loaded words. What what did you mean by networks? Were you talking about computer networks or networks between people? And in what sense are those networks living? So the it seemed to be an almost an obvious title at the time, in the sense of I, I always grew up believing in networks, thinking about networks. I can remember, you know, this is, I'm not young, and I remember when you picked up a telephone, you know, off a stand connected to a wire and I just imagine this whole network of all of the telephones in the world and any telephone anywhere you could dial a series of numbers and some telephone network somewhere else in the world would pick up you know I wanted to I got a microscope and I wanted to dissect worm brains to understand the neurons connections in the brains and uh, you know I saw society as networks and so this was you know all way way pre-internet and so when the we had the yeah I can remember the first time I got on a browser which was pre mosaic uh, this was uh, very early days and it was just like wow this the potential of this network and from the next you know through the nineties I was always saw these technologies as technologies of connection of connecting connecting people amongst others and. You know, at the time, a lot of people didn't get it. And they, they were sort of saying, you know, computers are for nerds in basements. And so I, I'm sort of, you know, notorious or we well known. One of my sort of things to my credentials is the New York Times credited me with predicting the rise of social networks because uh, none of today's social networks existed when I wrote Living Networks. For me, it was always obvious. It was, you know, somebody said, who could predict that? Well, it was obvious we were going to use these tools of connection to connect humans who are social uh, animals. We always have existed in networks and cities and communities and guilds and so on. And now this is being amplified. So the networks for me were at all layers. Now, the networks of our brains, you know, our brains are, of course, networks, our networks of societies and how we connected. The networks actually in many other biological structures as 
began to be more obvious over the last couple of decades with network science, as in biology, biological science, organizations and networks. You know, we'd seen them shift from being, being described as hierarchies to still being described as hierarchies, but actually functioning as networks, which they always were in the connected world. And so this all seemed to me as very obviously something which is literally coming to life. And so I wrote a introduction to the book where I was trying to justify this idea of, you know, why it actually was uh, not just a metaphor, but actually true that the networks were coming to life. And my editor said, nah, this is, you know, too long. People want to cut to the chase. This is a business book. And so it ended up on the cutting floor. Uh, they shared, shared it online afterwards. But, um, you know, that was the thesis. It's not just a metaphor. We are part of a, a higher order organism, and our value is how much we contribute to the growth and development of the, the higher order network. So my, the, uh, you know, I dedicated the book you know, to those who are connecting, making the connections from which the networks literally come to life. And that's those always the people I love and admire and uh, would want to hang out with are those connectors, the ones that are not wanting to connect themselves, but the ones who are wanting to connect others or to make connections out of which the richness of the networks emerges. Your book, Living Networks book, is very practical. Uh, that surprised me. It, it really is about understanding and utilizing means, whereas my books on things like the superorganism are uh, not practical at all. They're highly theoretical. So I'm curious if you see this way you look at the world, the universe, through this network lens, is that a useful tool for a certain kind of thinking? Or is that to you the story of the universe can be told basically just with that? Like, is it a useful thing or is it the answer? Well, both. In the sense of... First of all, uh, we could understand, and actually this, you know, this probably gets us, maybe later on we can get a little bit more to this idea of, uh, yeah, quantum entanglement, the uh, implicate order, and potentially everything being connected to everything in the universe. And that's, you know, the true nature of the networks of understanding, you know, network structure to the universe. But if we just think about the nature of business today, and this is, I, I think, pretty evident now, but a little less so when the book came out in 2002. Uh, was you know, The subtitle was, I think, Leading Your Company, Customers, and Partners in the Hyperconnected Economy. And so the hyperconnected economy was quite new then. And the fact of the connected world, the network world, the network economy. And so for a long time, I framed my work around saying, you know, we live in a network economy. All right, let's understand that. And this gives us various... Uh, ways of framing how it is we can create value for customers, how it is we organize, you know, we structure our organizations, what are the models for value creation? And, and so, for example, network business models have, you know, very simply have a, a fundamental tension. You need to create value across an entire ecosystem and you need to take part of that value for yourself. And if you don't take enough value, you're not able to participate. If you take too much value, you're to you're destroying the, the network participation. That's what a lot of people have grappled with 
over the last 20 years is how do you create these network models? So we've moved to platform structures. And so, you know, these are all just the foundations of essentially business today, but they're all come from understanding the economy as a network. And from that, you know, as you say, you know, the, the book was actually trying to be as pragmatic as possible and just saying, well, this is how it impacts marketing, how it impacts business strategy, how it impacts uh, organizational structure, how it'll, you know, the implications for individuals and so on. And it changes the nature of what we'll, how we work and how we create value, understanding that it is a fundamentally network economy. Well, I want to get into the, I want to understand how networks break and how, um, you know, if you saw social media coming, could you have seen the problems that we have coming? I want to get into all of that in a minute, but I still want to ask, re-ask my question because I recently wrote an article called the a 4 billion year history of large language models. And I say that I can tell the story of the first place we ever could write data was DNA. And I can explain how brains came about. And from that, I can explain how speech came about. I can explain cities. I can explain why writing came about and why cheap writing was such a big deal. But then I could explain, and these were all functions of uh, our ability to access and utilize information. And to me, that was the singular access by which I can count for everything. And I was trying to find that in your book. And maybe it's not there. Maybe, like I said, it's a tool. Because you can imagine a non-network intelligent creature. You could imagine a non-network functional society, couldn't you? Uh, I find it hard, actually. So into the nature of intelligence is making connections, really. And so the way in which we understand things is usually by metaphors or analogies. I see how this is like that maybe with some differences, and we learn by being able to make connections with previous experiences, to make connections with uh, perceptions, to make, uh, you know, be creative by connecting ideas. All creativity is connecting existing ideas. So if we think about what is intelligence, yeah, we, even if it's ersatz or artificial intelligence, it is, it is, has to be based on connections. And that's, that's large language models are, uh, yeah, in many ways, network structures. And in any case, whenever you ask a, a large language model, a question or get a response from that, it is essentially finding appropriate connections between, you know, words in its, uh, you know, repertoire to be able to give an appropriate response. So, so on the, so in, ter so in terms of what, into, you know, what thinking is and what intelligence is, I, I can't really see how that could happen without some kind of a network or network-related structure. And in terms of society, uh, I, th I think you could conceive of, for example, a truly hierarchical society, perhaps which was a little more akin to where we had uh, half a millennia ago, where you don't get any interaction between lower and higher levels, everything's intermediated. And so, yes, yeah, so I think, we, I suppose you could look at a societal structure. You can have non-network structures, but that's not as uh, effective or efficient or as, um, yeah, or it's not aligned with my values anyway. 
And of course, you know, all trade, you know, the, the, you, you know, you wrote in your book, We Are Agora, about specialization. And specialization basically means some people do things, some things better, sometimes in the same geography, sometimes in other parts of the world. And trade is a function of both people benefiting by exchanging things. That is an implicit network. And if you, you know, an economy has to be a network, otherwise it is only everyone is uh, needs to be entirely self-sufficient. So as you move beyond self-sufficiency to an economy of trade, of any degree of specialization, then it is implicitly a network structure and you're optimizing to, to make those flows uh, enable a better uh, economy. So getting to the current events, you know, I, I wrote a book once called Internet Progress where I opined optimistically about the future of the internet and I still believe it, but it hasn't been it hasn't it hasn't gone as smoothly as I expected it to, and and in retrospect, I think you know, it's all still very young. It's all still trivially young, and you know, check in fifty years and all that. But I'm wondering to what degree I've been thinking lately as I read your book. To what degree can you think of the kinds of issues that system engineers grapple with? Like if you're designing TCP/IP or some protocol, you're like, okay. I need to do error correction because there's going to be a certain amount of noise that gets on the line. I need to be able to spot errors and I need to be able to clarify them. Uh, you have to trust that the basic interactions on the network are in good faith, that the network is trying to communicate. There are all these kinds of things you take into it. And I'm curious to what extent, when you look at our social networks, that maybe they aren't, maybe they can't error correct. Maybe the amount of noise exceeds the amount of signal. Maybe th there are bad actors flooding the lines with with static. Um, do you think that way? And if so, how do you interpret the the challenges we're having with democracy, with uh, no people not agreeing on? Well, it used to be we agreed on the facts and had different values we applied to them. Now we don't even agree on the facts, let alone the values to apply to them. Um, we used to think, I used to think, the big problem was people just didn't have access to the right information. They just didn't have access to, to it. Well, it turns out you give everybody access to everything and it doesn't help. And at one level it does. Like I can get up in the morning and learn about something I'm interested in that I couldn't have been able to do before. But somehow it doesn't error correct or something. So give me a a network view of the challenges in our society right now that along these lines that are in large part are in some part true in the social networks. I think there's some intro, you know, very interesting ideas in what you were saying there. Uh, so I was, I was very early on a very strong advocate for the, you know, the value of social networks, and I was did quite a lot of media actually. I can like you know oh five or six or seven, uh, say well. Actually, organizations shouldn't necessarily completely block social networks inside their organization. They might actually serve a purpose. And know that uh, you know, it's not just about teenagers goofing off. These are people who are finding each other and find common interests. And, you know, there's anyway, so it was all of the fairly obvious in hindsight things which we were focusing on. And then I, as many, 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 many other uh, advocates of the, you know, this world. Uh, in 2016, was pretty much the, the the 
crunch point where we sort of say, well, uh-oh, actually, this this has not uh, worked out quite as well as uh, we uh, we dreamed or envisaged. And so you can point to a lot of the what went wrong. And well, there's, I mean, yeah, these are very deep discussions. We're trying to sort of, you know, address it succinctly. I mean, one is the certainly the design of the algorithms and the, you know, the commercial nature of those. And I think that that's, there's a structural way to how algorithms are designed and how interfaces are designed, which is very much part of the problem. But there is also this nature of humanity question. And, you know, a long time ago, I kind of, I put it as, you know, we are amplifying ourselves. We are becoming as gods. We, we have incredible power to amplify every aspect of who we are as humans. So whether we become a utopia or we destroy ourselves is in fact, tell, you know, we are discovering who we are. And, and you know, we, as we, we are essentially amplifying our good, we are amplifying our bad. And the reality is that humans are, uh, are flawed, deeply flawed, even though I love humanity beyond anything else. And so many of our deeply ingrained flaws have been amplified by these structures and connections and to your point around choice. As you say, well, if I've got all the information I could ever want, I will choose the information which accords with my values. So this is uh, as to how we can remedy that in terms of uh, you know, designing network structures or or social networks that that uh, fix us. I, uh, I I don't have any ready solutions, but I mean I think that we do need to be looking at that there are structural design elements which happen at the in in terms of how it is we essentially design the algorithms and the social networks, and there is something at an individual level, as in we need to be working on ourselves as individuals or communities to to be more open to, you know, try to go beyond a very narrow band of values or communication, uh, which I don't think we can bring everybody out of that. But I mean, this this is around the evolution of society into something which is uh, less polarized than we have today, expressed not just in um, USA, but in you know, Western Europe, uh, in parts of Asia as well. And so this is, the, yeah, I, I don't have ready solutions, but the, these are fundamental issues facing us as a society today. What about this as a wacky proposal? Um, so I live in a, you know, a diverse neighborhood. I walk around, I see uh, political signs in people's yards I agree with and political signs I disagree with. And I greet all those people the same. I stop and talk to them, you know, it, and and so you say somehow in a in that world, and uh, we aren't really polarized, and because I have to live with these people, and so do you think maybe the anonymous internet is a bad idea? That if everyone might have to just stand by what they said, be accountable for what they say, or just be known that they are the one who said it, that 100,000 years worth of the kind of one-on-one social interactions that we've had to develop from our warring 
a time when our neighbors might have worked with each other to they haven't. What would you think about that if everyone, and that was the well, the well insisted on that, you know, way, we're talking in the 80s. Uh, I think somebody said that uh, at the end of every post, there needed to be a nose that could be punched uh, or something like that. I mean, not not a idealistic thing, but basically that uh, you, had to, you had to stand by what you said. What would you think about that? So, so a non-anonymous web where everyone has to be linked to their identity. It's, I think there are many aspects where we will need to do that. And part of it is disambiguating AI and humans. So I think whilst there's a, some very flawed initiatives at the moment, we will need to find ways uh, of being able to distinguish between human and non-human participants in the social network. Which is going to going to be uh, almost impossible unless we have some kind of identification means. So if there is an identification means, you know, obviously linked to an individual, um, and I, I think that there is a place. There are play. I think it's not just you know it's and it's not either or. It is and. I think yes, the majority of communication we should be able to know who it is who is speaking, but I think there is a role for. Um, anonymous speech, but maybe in, you know, in pockets or places, not, you know, in, in different places where you can say, you know, people can go on and, uh, it's so there's, I think, I don't necessarily think it's good to have a world where you, people cannot, um, you know, you have to be tied to your identity. Because we, part of us, we have multiple identities, and you know, there, you know, for example, in some countries or societies or communities or families, for, for example, being having different sexual preferences is is uh, can impact your well, your life, uh, as well as your uh, you know just your family relationships, and you may want to interact talking with people with similar interests and have those kinds of conversations on. But that's just one example of many. So there's, we do, I think we do need to be able to tie people to identities, but we also need to be able to have the opportunity to, uh, to be able to engage in ways where we can't necessarily be identified. Do you have any predictions? And I don't mean that in kind of a clickbaity way. When you think about the evolution of networks, and then you look at what's going on with us right now, what? What happens next in just the broadest sense? Um, do people, if the network, does the network learn to fix itself? Does does the network get abandoned because it's unreliable? Does the network fragment into different networks? Uh, they don't talk, like, at that level, do you have an insight on on uh, the future, next five years, ten years. So this this goes back to something I did raise, I think, in in living networks, and I think uh, yeah, other people have made similar points later. Is that you know, if we are living in a global brain, then is that brain uh, is that global brain uh, sane, or does it need uh, psychiatric assistance? And one of the most obvious forms of psychiatric assistance that a global brain might need is in terms of being schizophrenic. 
you know, having divided personalities, being a divided uh, uh, intelligence. And so I, I think it's, you know, it's in some ways cute, but I think it is also, it's, it is useful. It is relevant to think of us as a global brain, as a super organism, as you describe in your book, We Are Agora, and thinking of how can it be as sane as possible? And yeah, you know, I, I I look a lot to uh, the potential work of Abraham Maslow. Whilst a lot of his work's been trivial, trivialized, you know, he was was looking at the potential human. What can humans be? Who can we be? What is the the fullest, richest potential of of our positive, uh, you know, engagement as a being alive and contributing to society? And I think we can think about the global brain in some way. What is it that could bring humanity, that, that global brain, out to fruition and being the fullest and most positive as possible and understanding that yeah, that's never, never quite possible. You know, we are flawed and we have to work with that along the way. So more specifically to, to some of your points, yes, we will have fragmented networks and we already do. You know, China is essentially a completely... Well, not completely, but you know, very largely separated network. Russia, again, is uh, largely siloing off. We just have a, and blo they've blocked uh, Wikipedia and created their own Kremlin-approved Wikipedia, um, for example. And the, you know, unfortunately, the technologies seem to be pretty effective at allowing these uh, these fragments of uh, to to be created. So whatever fragments break off and whatever happens with those politically with, uh, for example, Russia and China, many uncertainties there, that we, there's, you know, there will always be a rest of world which will be connected and will be more richly interfaced. And so part, one of the, the uncertainty, if we're looking about the predictions, I think one of the things is the degree to which individuals are, are sharing of themselves being within the network. And that's come a long way, of course, and the degree to which we've shared on social networks. And uh, I think that if we have the right network structures, we will be sharing more of ourselves and in terms of all sorts of content and, and uh, the, the digital exhaust from our lives and which being able to, which then amplified or reconstructed by AI and where we are starting to use humans plus AI and all of our participation in the networks where it is far more evidently alive at uh, the next level in terms of, you know, we are truly participants in this. You know, it was fairly conceptual when I wrote about it, you know, 20 or more years ago, but you know, I think that it's going to become far more evident that there is this, um, we, we are... Yeah, it starts to move to next levels in who we can be. So, you know, it's interesting to me because when when you wrote Living Networks, it was, it's almost like, take me back in time, because you were like, these things called web blogs, which the young people just call blogs. Um, since that time, though, everything's exponentially more. And so you... You switched gears in a way, and you said, "How how is how do you deal in a world where all oh, this is happening? How do you how do you how do, how do we quickly evolve um, the ability to deal with that?" And so, 
Talk about that book real real quickly, if you would. Yeah, well, so, so my latest book is Thriving on Overload. And this, you know, the central context we have is we have human brains, which are the most amazing things in the known universe, but they are also cognitively limited in, in many ways. And we live in a world where the amount of information available is unlimited. And so just on, on the face of it, doesn't doesn't quite quite work. So how do, how do we work with finite cognition and uh, infinite information? And there's, I, I think there's, again, there are some things which we can do at the structural level and be able to assist us in, you know, making it the incorrect information less visible to make more relevant information uh, visible to the individual and so on. But a lot of it comes about, back to the individual. How do we evolve our own cognition? to be more effective in a world which our brains are not built for. You know, we were built, our brains were evolved in a situation where we didn't have quite as much information as today. And so we, uh, we do need to work with that. And, you know, just, just to point out the blindingly obvious, one of the most ob obvious things is that we are dopamine driven brains, look for stimulus, they look for new information. We now have more information than we could ever want. And we get uh, a lot of, many of us, you know, and I, I'm not, I, I don't fully transcend this by any means, is, you know, we get caught in the infinite scrolls and the updates and the information and what's going on now. And it is eroding our cognition. And I think we, we are at a diverging path in our, in whether uh, we start to devolve, we become dumber as a result of being in this this information wash information, or we take this as an opportunity, which is very obviously possible, where we can take the fact of we can have any information we could possibly want to achieve our objectives at the finger, you know, instantly, and to be able to use that to uh, to achieve what we want. And this does require us to adopt different habits, different patterns, different structures. You know, so in my book, I go through, you know, the five things, the purpose, so understanding what information is actually useful or relevant or adds value to us in the first place, you know, to framing. And that's, that's a thing where information is just information, but it, it needs to become knowledge where it becomes part of our mental constructs that we are actually piecing things together and the connections, you know, these are again, the networks in our mind uh, of you know, semantic networks, which which is the foundation of meaning. You know, filtering to be able to, you know, make sure that we have the right sources and choose the right information. Attention, which is critical, which is, you know, that simple choice. The fundamental choice we all have, which is harder and harder, more and more valuable. Where do we allocate our attention? It is a limited resource. It's extraordinarily valuable to others who want to hijack it as well as to ourselves to make that choice. And finally, synthesis, which, you know, is again, the networks. How do we synthesize things? How do we draw the connections and bring into a whole things that have been disparate before to form this richness of understanding, making sense of the world, able to make decisions in an extraordinarily complex, fast moving world. So to this point, it is around, you know, we, we are devolving in some ways. And we are evolving in, in other ways, both individually and societal level. And, you know, that's kind of my complete focus is what are the ways we can nudge ourselves to positive evolution 
of humanity, individually and collectively, when there are many forces which are, you know, pointing us to devolution in various ways. So, final question. Um, what about Ross Dawson? What's next for you? What are you interested in? What are you, are you writing? What are you thinking about? What, what's your, where are you on your journey? So, I spent the last year pulling together the themes of, you know, my my things. I, I finished Thriving on Overload. It came out uh, 18 months ago. And, and I was saying, all right, what what do I just dive into next? What is it that I'm going to be really passionate about and wanting to spend all my time and energy on? And with the dawn of chat GPT, it was evidently, you know, what I immediately framed as humans plus AI. So it's been a long, I actually mentioned AI agents back in Living Networks. You know, and AI has, has long been a core of my work. But the uh, generative AI and the interfaces mean that it's far more explicit around humans and AI and how those come together. But it also brings together the themes of thriving and overload, individual cognition. So the, but the unifying theme of my work I now call amplifying cognition. And that's what, uh, you know, the name of my podcast, where, where you recently featured, which is a fantastic episode. And it's really just all of the pieces around that. So this goes to... Uh, yeah, there's a lot of a lot in how I think there's very much an attitude of our humans' relationship to AI. You know, we need to start. You know, and I describe in my book, Thriving Overload. Yes, I said just as we have a relationship to food and money, we have a relationship with information. We need to work on having a positive information uh, relationship with information. Today, we need to work on having a positive, constructive, enabling relationship with AI which starts to become part of our lives. And there's many tools and tactics. So a lot of what I'm working on now is what I call AI-enhanced thinking and decision-making. So running a Maven cohort course on that, and that's building that into a community and a software app I'm developing with this idea of humans plus AI workflow, where humans do what they are best at, and we draw out the best of humans, AI does what it's best at, and we combine those. And the thing is, in a world of, this, all of this focus seems to be on how do we make AI, you know, equal to or transcend humans, and that's that's not an interesting question to me. That that will happen in various guises. What is interesting to me is how do we create a system where humans express their fullest potential, their extraordinary potential, far beyond what it is today, enabled by and in conjunction with AI and other technologies. So when we look at human evolution, a lot of it right now is human evolution. You know, it's, it is co-evolution of, of humans and AI. And some of that is very pragmatic. So I work with boards on strategic decision-making and bringing AI into strategic decision-making with uh, investment um, committees and uh, institutional investors on how it is in a faster and faster changing world with unlimited information and the use of uh, next generation technologies, how we make superior investment decisions. So we're heading towards 300 trillion of financial assets in the world. And if we can invest, though that allocates that capital to where it creates the greatest financial and social value, that is immense. So my last job a very long time ago was as Global Director of Capital Markets at Thompson Financial. 
you know, and I recognize it's cap, you know, we live in a capitalist world. We have an immense amount of capital. And if we can find ways to better allocate those capital to things that, yeah, give us a long-term sustainable future in the world, create greater uh, opportunity for everyone to augment our possibilities to grow, to flourish, to create. Uh, you know, these are, are very important. So you can frame it as in, you know, human potential terms, or you can say, well, actually, this is a capital allocation issue. <laughs> let's let's allocate our capital better. And so these are the, that's kind of the wash of things that I'm, I'm playing with at the moment. Well, I can't wait to read it. And I thank you for taking some time out of your day today. And I hope you'll come back. Real pleasure to be with you, Byron. Thanks a bunch. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to like, comment, and subscribe so that more folks like you can become a part of the Agora. Visit ByronReese.com for more information about each episode and to learn about Byron's forthcoming book, We Are Agora. 